Radio Mano Papachango. today uh crazy shit going on out in the world bombs going off in france belgium in lockdown republican lunatics over here freaking out about letting syrians into the country america is the most frightened country i've ever been in don't believe this shit about home of the brave it's not true it's not true a bomb goes off in paris and People in fucking Nebraska think they're next. (laughs) I'm sorry to break it to you, but nobody's going to be bombing Nebraska. Except some, you know, white supremacist motherfucker. What's that line from, there's a Spearhead song uh, where he says, I remember the time in Oklahoma, you tried to blame an Arab, but the whitey was the bomber. You've been jumping to conclusions. I think you spent your whole life watching cable in seclusion. Illusions about what's outside your door. One nigger, two nigger, three nigger, four. So that's, um, that's the kind of paranoia that you've got going on in America. They hate us for our freedoms? Really? If that were true, they wouldn't hate us so much because we don't have that many freedoms. Fewer all the time. Anyway, okay, that's the political rant. Now let's move on to other stuff. This week's guest is Sheldon Solomon, who is a fascinating dude. I first heard about years ago when I was in grad school, Stanley Krippner, who uh, some of you, probably most of you have heard on the show, uh, was my uh, dissertation advisor, and he forwarded some research to me uh, that Sheldon and his colleagues had been doing in an area called terror management theory. And um, Sheldon's entire career has been focused on this work. And as you'll hear, it started, I think when he was in graduate school, he read Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death, and something clicked very deeply in him and in his two colleagues, um, whose names I can't remember right now, but we cover in the podcast, They've published uh, stuff together for, you know, 20, 30 years at this point. And uh, basically, for those of you who haven't read Becker's book, it's amazing and well worth your time. Uh, Essentially, what he argues is that human beings are unique in our awareness of our impending deaths, that we know we're mortal. In fact, The species name for our species is Homo sapiens sapiens, which means the hominid that knows it knows. Earlier form was Homo sapiens, and then somewhere 40, 50,000 years ago, uh, there are the first indications of self-awareness and of death and of burying uh, people with um, jewelry and uh, stuff to take into the next life and so on and so forth. So archaeologists and anthropologists sort of agree at that point is when 
uh, true culture arose, and that's when we as a species were thinking of our lives as a limited time. So in a way, from some perspectives, this awareness of our mortality is what um, differentiates us as a species from earlier species and from other intelligent species who don't appear to know that they're going to die. Some species, like elephants, for example, appear to grieve. Chimpanzees as well um, get very quiet and solemn and um, and have behavior that's almost ritualistic, uh, seemingly, around death uh, when someone from their social group dies. So there is an awareness of death, but not necessarily, we don't know that chimps or elephants or dolphins are, you know, thinking, I better hurry up and get this done because someday I won't be here anymore. Anyway, so Becker's idea is that humans do have this awareness and that we um, have constructed psychological mechanisms for diverting our attention from that, for distracting ourselves from it, because it would make us insane if we actually thought about it regularly. Um, so this, as you can imagine, is... Uh, a very important line of thinking because if it's true, then there are all sorts of things that we do that are uh, fueled by this fear of our own mortality, but things that we're not necessarily aware of. And that's the basis of terror management theory, which is that we have these psychological mechanisms and there are ways to study them and measure them. Uh, and it's very interesting and very relevant to what's going on in the world right now because one of the things that happens is and you'll hear us talk about this, but in-group identification becomes much more important. So when you're reminded of your mortality, whether it's by the evening news showing bombs going off and you sort of project yourself into there and think, oh my God, that could be me, or something very subtle like just driving by a funeral home. You might not even really notice it consciously, but your subconscious registers it and something shifts in you. And uh, so what happens in many people is you start to identify more closely with your group. So you, you know, you, you're more into your religion or your family or your race or whatever your group identification is. And people outside of that group are seen as more threatening. So judges will impose harsher penalties on uh Illegal immigrants, for example, if they're reminded of their mortality, then the same judge would apply to the same case before they were reminded of their mortality. So it's a very interesting, very powerful and subtle way to manipulate people psychologically if you remind them of their mortality. And that plays into, of course, the fear-mongering that we see happening all the time in American society, particularly with Fox News. Oh my God, they're declaring war on Christmas. They're declaring war on this. There's war on that. Oh, they hate us. Oh, we're victims. Right, right. The rich, white, powerful American people are the victims. Uh huh. But that's a way to control people. And you see the same thing in religion, where, you know, your only possible salvation is by giving us your money and doing what we tell you to do. Giving up your, your, uh, sovereign, autonomy 
to this institution is the only way that you will avoid eternal damnation, ladies and gentlemen. It's the only way you will avoid burning in hell forever. (laughs) What a fucking con, man. What a scam. Holy shit. If you haven't listened to George Carlin talking about religion as the perfect scam uh just google that shit he's hilarious on that all right so i thought i'd do some poetry this week i get emails from people saying that they really like it when i do that which surprises the hell out of me i didn't think anybody liked poetry really these days but um there's some great poetry out there so uh i'll throw some at you occasionally Here's one uh, that I've been intrigued by for years uh, by W.H. Auden, who died in 1973. He was massive. He was one of the most famous poets in the world in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, Very interesting guy. He was gay, openly gay. In fact, his last lover, I believe, um, was a friend of mine, um, a teacher that I had as an undergraduate so I have sort of a personal connection to him. I never met him, of course, but um, Auden, that is. Um, but, you know, reading about him, it was always interesting because I knew a man who knew him very, very well at the end of his life. Um, anyway, this poem is called The More Loving One. And I can't tell you I know exactly what he's really getting at here. I used to think I did, but the more I read it, the more unsure I am. So, uh you know, I'm not going to unlock this for you, but I'll present it and, uh, and we'll see what you think. So it's called The More Loving One. Looking up at the stars, I know quite well that for all they care, I can go to hell. But on earth, indifference is the least we have to dread from man or beast. How should we like it were stars to burn with a passion for us we could not return If equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. Admirer as I think I am of stars that do not give a damn, I cannot, now I see them, say I missed one terribly all day. Were all stars to disappear or die, I should learn to look at an empty sky and feel its total dark sublime, though this might take me a little time. So formally, it's a very tightly constructed poem. Is There are four um, stanzas of four lines each, uh, and the rhyme scheme is A-A-B-B. So if you look at the first stanza, it's the last words are well, hell, least, beast. And then it's burn, return, be me. And then the third stanza, am, damn, say, day. And then die, sky, sublime, time. Uh, it's It's got a lot of meaning, but it's very sort of liquid. And so anyway, I used to think this was a poem about love, right? Sort of talking about what the French say, where in every relationship there is one who offers the kiss and one who turns the cheek to receive it. Right, every relationship there's a kisser and a kissy, you know, the the one who loves more and the one who loves least. Um, because for years I only remembered that 
the two lines where he says, if equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. That was the what stuck with me in my memory. And so I thought it was a poem about relationships and, and him essentially saying, well, you know, if there's going to be inequality in a relationship, let me be the one, let me be the victim. Let me be the one who loves more. Um, because maybe that's not really the victim. On the surface, it looks like you're the winner, right? You're the one who gets kissed. You're the one that the other one loves more. Lucky you. But maybe what he's really saying is, yeah, then you're really the loser because it's the experience of loving that is so beautiful. The experience of being loved seems beautiful but it's the it's the loving itself it's the experience of loving that is the real gold you know and that's reflected in other parts of life you look around you say well okay society is designed in such a way that we're taught that receiving wealth is what it's about right getting rich get rich or die trying receiving admiration, receiving, um, you know, every, every, every sort of resource and energy that you can get, the more you, that comes your way, the luckier you are. But really, when you look at what makes people happy, it's helping others. If, you, if you're depressed and you're sick of your life and whatever, the best thing you can do, as, as counterintuitive as this sounds, because your society is telling you the opposite every fucking day, but really psychologically validated research demonstrates time and time again that the best thing you can do to feel happier about your life is help people. Go volunteer at a fucking kitchen. Go, you know, work or, or help animals. Go go to the SPCA and, you know, clean cages for a day and take dogs for a walk. And helping other beings enriches your life, right? Which subverts the entire relationship we're told that uh, we should be looking for with energy. We're told that we should want to receive all this stuff. But in fact, what truly makes us happy is when we give this stuff. You know, every philosopher from Jesus on down has said the same thing. But, you know, the, the sort of commercial interests of society, which rule the day, tell us the opposite. Anyway, so that's what I thought the poem was about. And I still think that's probably one of the main um, areas of focus. But there's so much more going on. So all this stuff about the stars, right? So I'm looking up at the stars. I know quite well that for all they care, I can go to hell. Okay, so I'm looking at the stars. They don't give a fuck about me, right? So this is a one-way relationship I have with the sky, then he says, but on earth, indifference is the least we have to dread from man or beast. Right. Okay. So on earth, indifference is the least. So we have, we can be heard in so many ways that indifference really isn't a big threat to us. And yet, and yet they say the opposite of love is in hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Right. Because hate is still concern. Hate is energy. Hate is focus. And so it's a, it's a similar expression as love. It's a connection. 
right? Whereas indifference is a, an absence of connection. It's an absence of focus. It's an absence of attention. So the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. So he says on earth, indifference is the least we have to dread from man or beast. How should we like it were stars to burn with a passion for us we could not return? So here he's saying, okay, how would it feel if the sky loved us so much and we couldn't do anything about it? We couldn't return it. What's that feel like to be loved by someone you don't love? can't love if equal affection cannot be let the more loving one be me hmm yeah maybe i mean there's fame there's fame in this right how does it feel to be someone that famous that is receiving all this love from people they can't possibly love them back they don't even know them you know, Prince or Madonna or Mick Jagger or some, you know, Bruce Springsteen. Those people really, really love them. They love what they've said. They love the feelings that they've, I mean, it's a personal experience they've got with their music and, and uh, you know, the girls screaming when the Beatles showed up in America. Holy cow, that was insane, right? How's it feel to be on the other end of that? Well, the Beatles weren't screaming. The Beatles weren't going, holy shit. Ah! No, that was the girls in the front row who were doing that at Shea Stadium. So they were actually in a much more sort of excited state than the Beatles were. So the givers were having an experience that was far more intense than the receivers not to say that the Beatles weren't having an intense experience, but, you know, for them, it had to sort of be normal everyday life after a certain point. Anyway, admire as I think I am. I like the doubt there. Not admire as I am, but admire as I think I am of stars that do not give a damn. I cannot now I see them say I missed one terribly all day. That's the truth, right? It's like, yeah, I love looking at the moon. I love the moon. But I go for months without even noticing what phase the moon is in when I'm living in a city. When I'm traveling, I see it a lot. When I'm living in a city, I forget about it. And yet when I'm dying, I'll probably be looking back and thinking, you know, I should have watched more sunsets. I should have, you know, laying out in fields and looked at the stars more often than I did because those are some of the most beautiful moments in my life, but I don't really pursue them and I don't really actively miss them when they're not there. So I think this is also about adapting, how quickly we adapt to things. We're all stars to disappear or die. That's interesting, to disappear or die. So here he's, this is reflecting on people, right? People in his life, maybe someone he loves. And he's saying, you know, I think I love, I, I do love this person, but let's be real. Let's be real. If this person died or, or the relationship dies and whatever, I'll get over it. And that's kind of a brutal, horrible thing to realize. Anyway, we're all stars to disappear or die. I should learn to look at an empty sky and feel its total dark sublime. 
<laughs> so it's true, right? I mean, we It's like, oh, the stars are the most amazing thing. Well, what if there were no stars? Then we'd be like, wow, that empty black sky is the most amazing thing. <laughs> it's just, it's we're amazed by what is. And we can't imagine it any differently. Oh, the blue sky, there's nothing like a blue sky. Well, what if the sky were green, right? If the sky were green, we'd be going, wow, that amazing green sky. There's nothing like the green sky. Anyway, I should learn to look at an empty sky and feel its total dark sublime, though this might take me a little time. Yeah. We are amazing. We are the most adaptive creatures. Us, cockroaches, rats, and Keith Richards can adapt to anything. And that is the best thing and the worst thing about our species. Thank you, everyone, who is supporting this podcast through Fund What You Love, fundwhatyoulove.com, where you can go and just uh, enter your credit card one time, one time only, and say, yeah, I want to give this podcast a buck a month or 20 bucks a month or a thousand bucks a month or whatever it is that you can afford in your budget. It's a nice way to uh, give the podcast uh, an operating budget, and we know what's coming in relatively every month. You can cancel anytime you want, of course. Speaking of that, uh, people have been asking me what's happening with the podcast when we go back to Spain and so on. I have every intention to continue the podcast. I really enjoy this. And in fact, uh, once I've got this book wrapped up, um, I hope to be able to dedicate more time to it, track down more interesting guests, not more interesting, but more interesting guests. Um, And uh, yeah, so that's, I I don't uh, see any interruption coming on the podcast. And we're going to be traveling in Southeast Asia for a few months. And I'm really excited about taking the podcast on the road, interviewing people we meet along the way. Um, I know some people in Thailand already that uh, I'm excited to to have on the podcast. But, you know, we're going to run into people as one does. So it'll be fun to take it on the road and see see what happens there. Anyway, thank you. I think there are like 150 or so people on Fund What You Love who have um, pledged some some cash to the podcast. Thanks to every one of you. And also to those of you who are ordering uh, stuff on Amazon through my affiliate link at chrisryanphd.com. You can just click on it once and then bookmark the landing page you get at uh, when you arrive at Amazon and then just use that bookmark from then on and everything you buy at Amazon, will get a cut from 4 to 7%. So that adds up. Um, people spend quite a bit of money at Amazon. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It just takes the cut out of Amazon's end of things. So it's uh, great. It's a way you can deflect some cash to the podcast um, without you know adding to your bills. So Really appreciate that. It's very helpful. And uh, also, everyone's been, I forget to mention the t-shirts, but people have been ordering a lot of t-shirts and hoodies, keeping mom busy. So that's really cool. You can order all that stuff on chrisryanphd.com. I was, big news this week, (laughs) I was nominated for an AVN award. AVN is adult video something. I don't know what the N is for, but it's sort of like the uh, the Oscars of porn. And you may remember if you're a longtime listener that I was in a movie called Marriage 2.0. Cassie and I appeared and we had a cameo as ourselves, actually. Um, and so I've been nominated 
<laughs> for this for this award. It's fucking goofy, man. It's it's one of those things that goes on my resume along with, you know, teaching hookers English and uh, you know, massage therapists for fashion models and all the other weird shit I've done over the years. Um, but it's hilarious. I'm in the best non-sex performance category. Now, the categories themselves are hilarious. I mean, there's the, you know, best MILF scene and best, you know, girl-on-girl action and best anal. And, you know, so the the categories are great. But I'm in the best non-sex performance um, you know, and I'm a long, I, I'm in there with people like um, Dick Chibbles, okay, <laughs> who was in a film called Dirty Deeds. Dick Chibbles, man. Uh, Frank Buckwid, uh, someone named Small Hands, who was in a film called Rhonda Arouse Me, which I guess is uh, Rhonda Arouse, what's her name? Ronda, the UFC fighter. Uh, Ron Jeremy, the great Ron Jeremy, is is one of my co-nominees. And uh, Fred Passion. Anyway, so they've got all these names, some of them real, some of them made up. And then there's me, Christopher Ryan, Ph.D. <laughs> they included the Ph.D. for some reason. I don't know why classes, you know, classes it up or I don't know. Anyway, that's pretty silly. So I've been nominated for an award. There's going to be a big thing in Vegas in January. I, I'm not going to make it, unfortunately. So if I win the award, you know, maybe one of you can go and accept it for me. All right, that's it for the housekeeping. Uh, I'll read one more poem, another one of my favorite poems. I actually have read this before on the podcast, um, but I'll read it again because it's very uh, apropos to today's guest in his area of focus. It's called For the Anniversary of My Death, and it's by W.S. Merwin. It's a very short, very brief poem, but lovely. So I'm not going to analyze it. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll go straight to the to the podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for being part of this community, and I hope everything's going really well for you out there in the world. For the Anniversary of My Death. Every year without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out. Tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men. As today writing after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease, and bowing, not knowing to what. That was W.S. Merwin. All right, I'm going to play you into this uh, conversation with a song called uh, Politique Amani by Amadou and Miriam. Cassie asked me to include it in this week's podcast as a as a gesture toward our brothers and sisters in Paris. Amadou and Miriam, Politique Amagny.
Sheldon Solomon of uh, Skidmore College, or is is it Skidmore University? No, it's Skidmore College. Chris. Skidmore College. You know, I uh, I actually applied to Skidmore and was accepted. It was one of my um, college options. I ended up going to Hobart, another upstate New York excellent private college. I probably should have gone to Skidmore, though. I, I think <laughs> there are a lot of places I should have gone. Probably me too. <laughs> I live in uh, Portland, Oregon now, and uh, the Reed College is out here, and that's another place I think you know. I I applied to Reed, Skidmore, Hobart, and Hampshire College. Oh wow! All very expensive places. I don't know why my parents didn't say, "Hey, SUNY, come on." Yeah, because they wanted you to get a good education. I think they meant well. They, oh, they definitely meant well. They meant well. Um, they they strained to pay for it, and that was back in the early 80s when it wasn't nearly as expensive as it is now, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, first, I first came across your research when I was in graduate school. must have been the late 90s. 
Um, have you been doing uh, terror management theory since then? Yeah, we actually started, I'd say, in the mid-1980s. Oh, okay. So you were well into it at that point. I remember Stanley Krippner, who was my um, advisor in grad school, gave me some some of your papers to look at. And I immediately was intrigued by the underlying theory, which uh, basically is that the human awareness of uh, mortality may, creates all sorts of mechanisms for avoiding that awareness. Is that is that an accurate summation? Yeah, fair enough. In fact, perfect. Uh, you know, our work, Chris, is based on Ernest Becker, who won a, a cultural anthropologist. He won a Pulitzer Prize in 1974 uh, for a book called the, De- the Denial of Death. And Becker's basic claim is that, you know, what distinguishes people from all other critters is that we're smart enough to realize that we will someday die and that we can die at any time. And he proposed that that's an incredibly unwelcome realization and that we go to spectacular lengths to deny that fact. And that that underlies just about everything that people think about and do and say. Yeah. Well, I'm very tuned into this idea at the moment, even more than usual, because I'm writing a book called Civilized to Death. And I'm right now, like this morning, I was working on the chapter about death. And, you know, Freud basically argued in Civilization and its Discontents that civilization is the product of redirected sexual energy. Um, And I'm arguing that civilization is a product, at least Western civilization, of um, the the denial of death, that, that we construct all these institutions out of our fear of our own mortality. So I'm very, I'm, very, I'm resonating a lot with Becker's ideas and your ideas. Can you give a, a quick, like a, a few examples of the way these things play out in the subconscious? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, according to Becker and the the work that we do, um, you know, what humans do quite unconsciously in response to death anxiety is to embrace a a culturally constructed view of reality. We call it a cultural worldview uh, that gives us each a sense that life has meaning and that we have purpose. Uh, And the idea is that ultimately what's at stake is immortality because uh, every culture, as far as we can tell, uh, offers some hope of immortality, either literally or or symbolically to people that behave in accordance with cultural dictates. And so from our perspective, people are highly motivated to maintain faith in their beliefs about reality and confidence in their self-worth. And and to the extent that that's true, whenever either of those constructs are threatened, your your beliefs or your self-worth, uh, we will lash out quite defensively. And one example of that, and I think uh, uh, one of the most profoundly uncomfortable ones, is that this may help us explain why people can't get along with other folks who are different from themselves. Because if your beliefs serve to reduce death anxiety and you accept the validity of somebody else's, then you're undermining the confidence with which you subscribe to your own. 
And that brings that very anxiety to the psychological foreground. And so in our studies, when we remind people that they will someday die by asking them to fill out a questionnaire about death or sometimes interviewing them in front of a funeral parlor or even flashing the word death so fast on a computer screen that you can't even see it, Well, it turns out that in response to that, we like people who share our beliefs a lot more and we hate people who are different. Not only that, we sit further away from them. If we're given an opportunity to hurt them, uh, we'll do that. And we're even more in favor of killing them if need be. Yeah, I remember some of the research uh, that I read of of yours. I think it was a they were judges and they gave harsher penalties when they were subconsciously primed to think about their own mortality? Well, that's right. In fact, that was the first study and in many ways, Chris, remains uh, one of the most profound uh, to the point where uh, when I talk about these ideas and people are like, oh, that that's bullshit. There's no way that, that this could possibly be true. Uh, we tell them about this study, which was conducted on municipal court judges in Tucson, Arizona. And we just randomly divided the judges into two groups. And one of the one half of the judges was asked to think about their own mortality And then we asked the judges to set bond uh, for a municipal case. It happened to be uh, someone who had been accused of prostitution. And what we found is that the judges who were reminded of their mortality set a bond that was nine times higher than that which was set uh, by the judges in the control condition. Nine times higher. That's yeah, that. it is incredible. And, and uh, then we turned that around, though, and we asked another group of people. We had them think about death or, or something unpleasant. We asked them to assign a monetary reward for someone who behaved in a heroic fashion. And, and when that happened, people reminded of death set a reward that was three times higher. And so the point that we try to make is is that it's not the reminders of death make people unilaterally negative or unhappy or, or extraordinarily punitive or aggressive. If that were true, uh, it wouldn't be particularly interesting. I think what's more subtle is that these death reminders uh, have effects that go in both directions. We support and like people to the extent that they share our beliefs and values, and we denigrate and destroy those who are different. And let's be clear, for people who aren't familiar with your research, when we say that uh, people are primed, the subjects are primed to think about their own mortality or whatnot, as you said, it's flashing an image on a computer screen that the conscious mind isn't even aware of. That's right. I I think, was it one of your um, studies you had... You interviewed people walking down a sidewalk and you interviewed them uh, before they got to the funeral home and then others after they'd walked past the funeral home. Well, that's right. You, you, you have a good awareness of our stuff, Chris. I applaud that. Yeah, I think this was a, a very clever way to momentarily remind people of their mortality. And I say clever because one of our German colleagues, Robert Wickland, thought about it. Uh, and, yeah, we stopped people either right in front of a funeral home or 100 meters to either side. And we found that when people were interviewed in front of the funeral home, they showed the same defensive reactions that we find in the lab. And the point that you made, I think, is very, very important. And that is these are subtle effects. 
and you don't need to know that death is even on your mind. And so a lot of times people, when they hear about these ideas, they're like, well, this can't possibly be true because I rarely think about myself dying. And our point, with all due respect, is that, yes, you rarely think about yourself dying because you're comfortably ensconced in this symbolic worldview from which you derive a sense of meaning and value. And if that worldview were to be challenged, then death anxiety would come cascading in like a flooding river in your psychological lagoon, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's, that's quite an image there, full of uh, crocodiles and snakes. Yeah, there you well. go. I yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, let me challenge you a little bit here. Go. Um, first of all, the idea that we're um, rarely aware of, of death um, flies in the face of the fact that a great a mass of the, the media that's coming out is all about death, whether it's, you know, the scaremongering news programs that, uh, you know, every shark attack is, you know, seen as some sort of a threat to suburban America or uh, war, the constant war footage that we see, the murder shows on TV. Aren't we being inundated with reminders of mortality constantly? Yeah, all right, you got me, because the the reality is, you're right, and a lot of folks say, I never think about death, and quite frankly, our response is, you know, open your eyes or your ears, uh, you know, how could you go through even 10 minutes of exposure to the popular media uh, without being inundated by these images, so you're quite right, we're bombarded by them every day. But I wonder if that uh, bombardment is in itself a method of desensitizing us. Absolutely. Nicely done. And I happen to agree with you um, that that's correct. Uh, by being inundated with these repeated images, it kind of fortifies us. I, I think it was Aristotle uh, who said, you know, there's no, uh, nothing's more uplifting than when the guy next to you gets hit with the arrow. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, psychologically speaking, that's probably what's at stake. We're able to withstand the constant barrage of death imagery in part because I think it gives us the comfortable illusion that it'll never happen to us. Right. We're the lucky ones. That's right. We're the ones who got away. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that a lot when I'm, I'm debating, you know, civilizational issues with people. And they say things like, you know, well, we, we, you know, we've always survived every calamity. You know, we survived this, we survived that. And I'm thinking, well, who is we here? Yeah. You know, I mean, 70,000 years ago, there were about 5,000 breeding uh, per, uh, human beings on the planet because of a, a volcanic eruption that wiped out just about everybody. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. And you make a great point that I find myself um, uh, going back to uh, repeatedly, and that is uh, to remind people, as you do in your discussions, that you know, human beings, we're a remarkable anomaly and ridiculously improbable at that. You know, every person, as you put it, is is descended from this really tiny and rather inbred group of proto-humans that made it through a genetic bottleneck. It's quite amazing that any of us are here. I wonder if, you know, sort of extrapolating from this, are you familiar with the, the idea that um, Western civilization is essentially a PTSD 
response. Yes. Yeah. I like that idea. Well, it, it meshes nicely with your own work, doesn't it? It sort of gives it shows the engine of these psychological mechanisms. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, do you know the lunatic Oswald Spangler, the decline of the West? Yeah, sure. Uh, because I think that, uh, you know, although and I, I put lunatic in quotes and with uh, respect and affection, because I, I think that was his argument is nowhere do you see. Uh, this idea of death denial uh, more uh, unmistakably clear uh, than in the underlying dynamic of Western civilization. Just this idea of an inexorable road to progress, you, you know, leading to some utopian state where we will abolish death or at least render it extraordinarily unlikely. I think it's death denial par excellence. Yeah. Yeah. One of my pet peeves is. The notion that we've doubled the human lifespan, yes, you know, which is always attributed to, you know, anytime I, I offer a critique of civilization, the first thing that comes back is, come on, man, we, you know, we live twice as long as we used to. Of course, life's better. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the research in this area, but that's complete bullshit. The human well, modal lifespan is 68 to 75 years. And has been for quite some time? Forever. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, our species is is designed by evolution to live into its late sixties to early seventies. Uh -huh. So this idea that we've doubled the human lifespan is purely a statistical trick in which you include all the infant mortality uh, to come up point. with your average. That but, makes a lot of sense. I never thought about it that way, but that would do it. Yeah, and you don't include, by the way, abortion. Right, uh -huh. aborted infants. So now uh, there was a lot of infanticide in, in prehistoric societies. A, a child that was born obviously uh, incapacitated or not strong. The idea was, you, you know, you let that baby die because you're, you don't have enough energy uh, to take care of everybody. So if it's clear that this baby's ill and or incapacitated, you take it out in the woods and let it die. Right. And in those societies, uh, an infant wasn't even considered a human being. That's right. So it's really a postnatal abortion is what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the, yeah, the idea in, you know, in, in some essay I said, it's like if you live on an island, a vacation island with a bunch of middle class people and then Bill Gates comes in and buys one of the properties, suddenly the average income <laughs> yeah. on that island is, you know, yeah. a billion dollars a year or something. Right. right. Great example. But everyone else remains impoverished, nevertheless. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you can play funny games with that. Um, uh, what the hell was I talking about? Oh, uh, speaking of hell, are you familiar with a book called A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca no. Solnit? It's, it's a great book. And, and it, it, I don't know whether you would see it as a challenge to your research or not, but what she does is um, she interviews people who are uh, experts in human behavior and disaster right. scenarios. And it's really fascinating. I, one of the, the leaders, the, the founders of the field of disaster research um, said that his research, his, his entire career has led him to the conclusion that the true disaster is normal life, not the earthquake, the fire, the war, whatever has caused uh, the disruption in people's lives. Because what happens is that in these 
situations of incredible stress and disruption, people are kind to each other. They step up. I like that idea. Yeah, you might want to check out the book. It's uh, it's a you know, really I, good book. I will do that. I, I, yeah, I am enamored with that idea. You know, it's also a lot of my favorite novels. Uh, I like Joseph Conrad and, and you oh, know, yeah. Melville, of course. And a, a lot of these folks make the same point that uh, the tragedies bring the best out in us. And uh, normality, as Kierkegaard put it, uh, we just tranquilize ourselves with the trivial. I like that take. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, in a way, it sort of seems in opposition to some of your research, but in other ways, maybe maybe the the reactions that you're uncovering in this research and by the way other people have replicated these effects all over the place there are hundreds of studies that have been done in this area correct that's right and i yeah. think that's more important than our work because if you replicate your own ideas uh, you know that's an interesting start but it's not science yeah. it only becomes science when someone else can do it but but you do make a good point, Chris, and it's one that we think about a lot, and, and that's to remind ourselves and other people that, you know, in our studies, the death reminders are very subtle and very fleeting. You know, we flash the word death on a computer screen, and, you know, when you got the earthquake or the tsunami, um, you know, that's a reminder of death of a very different order. And... You know, if that's what it takes to, you know, as Plato put it in the cave, you know, people are dreaming while awake. If that's what it takes to wake us up and if it's that glaring a reminder of our finitude, um, if that's what it takes to kind of shake us out of our slumber, then so be it. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe the the effects that you're studying and, and uh, illuminating are the first step in a series of things that happen when people are confronted with death. Yes, I like that. I used to work, uh, for about 10 years, I worked in hospitals in Spain. And um, one of the reasons I liked working in hospitals was I felt that being in the presence of, of death, um, there was, there's a sacred... Uh, I don't know how to explain it. There, there, there's a feeling of being in the presence of the sacred, I guess. And I really liked especially working with um, oncologists and intensive care physicians, people who were facing death constantly, because all the bullshit was stripped away. Yeah. Um, and I found that they had a great sense of humor and the women were sexy as hell. Absolutely. Because, they're, oh. you know, and my theory was they're faced with death, so they're, they're living. They're yeah. like, God damn it, I'm alive. I just saw some three people die this morning. I am going to have sex during my lunch break. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, silliness aside, I, I, I could not agree more. I, I go to a lot of, because of the work that we do. Uh, I'm at a lot of conferences with, uh, you know, palliative care and oncology types. And, and, you know, I just say to those folks, you guys are at the vanguard, not only of medicine, but of humanity uh, for the reasons that you say, you know, they're around death every day. And death is the ultimate challenge, you know, to people. It really threatens to tear a gaping hole in that delicate, uh, you know, humanly constructed tapestry of meaning that we all depend on to stand up every day. 
And, you know, they're the ones that, you know, help people die, uh, but, you know, not in a way that denies death, but by affirming life. And that's my sense when I run into those very special people. They, you know, they're not around death because they relish it. They're around it because they love life. And they love people. And Absolutely. Yeah. And But I do kind of feel like, especially in America, they're caught in a crossfire between people who need to be helped to die and a culture that refuses to see death as anything but a failure. Absolutely. I, I think the American medical profession is in a terrible existential dilemma. And I hear that. Um, you know, from the palliative care people and the, the hospice people, um, because they're kind of on one side and then there's the surgeons. And I, of course, this is a grotesque overgeneralization, uh, but we are the ultimate culture of death denial. And it does make it very difficult uh, in our country in ways that I've not seen, let's say, in the UK or in Canada, where there's a much more integrated and holistic approach to these matters. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 it always blows my mind. This morning I was writing about this case in Florida, a 75-year-old man, his wife had uh, advanced Alzheimer's, advanced uh, osteoporosis and arthritis, was in constant pain, uh was delusional, the whole thing and she the hospital kicked her out, the nursing homes wouldn't accept her because they couldn't handle her. She was, you know, she'd get up, pull things, pull the the needle out of her arm and, and, you know, wandering around, just terrible situation. And in a moment of, um, of clarity, she begged him to help her die. Right. And of course he did, he shot her and they sentenced him to 25 years in prison for first degree murder. Like what kind of, if that had been the family dog, we'd applaud him for his courage and his mercy. Right. Absolutely. But if it's his wife of 51 years, we send him to prison for the rest of his life. Yeah. There's well, something I, going on here. Yeah, there is. And I, I, I would argue, you know, just consistent, perhaps not surprisingly, with the work that we do, that that is the extent to which um, we recoil in horror from the prospect of the inevitability of death. Yeah. So we, we're talking about cultures and, and how American society seems to be in a particularly vehement state of denial about this stuff. Um, have you done, have you looked at uh, how doctors respond to these primes, for example? Uh, do oncologists or other doctors who are facing uh, existential issues on a daily basis, do they respond differently than, than random people? Yeah, great question. And the the answer, the short answer is we don't know yet, and we would sure like to find out. Now, we have done some preliminary work with medical students, and um, we did one study a, a decade or two ago where we had medical students. We divided them into two groups. You know, we had half of them think about death and the other half something unpleasant. And then we showed them a case that was written by physicians about someone who was suffering uh, from uh, extraordinary respiratory problems and uh, who didn't want to be kept alive artificially. So he had signed a DNR and the person comes into the emergency room in distress and we asked the medical students, well, how would you treat this person? How aggressively would you try to keep them alive? 
And what we found is that the med students reminded of their own mortality. They advocated for a much more aggressive treatment, despite the fact that the patient didn't desire it. No kidding. Yeah, and this was particularly true for the students who um, were high in neuroticism. And and that's just the proneness to anxiety. And, of course, our argument was, that well, uh, the med students' own existential concerns was getting in the way of how they were diagnosing and and treating their patients. Um, Now, of course, we would want to replicate this with physicians. And uh, part of the problem for us has been it's been very difficult to get doctors to participate in these studies. And so kind of ironically, when we've asked over the years sometimes to have access to physicians, uh, the physicians say, oh, there's no way that your stupid questionnaire is going to influence how I practice medicine. And, you know, which is funny for doctors who base what they do on evidence just declaring in advance that they wouldn't be prone to these effects. Yeah, well, the the notion that American medical practice is based on evidence is itself (laughs) debatable, let's say. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, the bias built into the research process is astonishing. You know, the papers that don't confirm what you set out to confirm don't get published. That's right. <laughs> it's it's incredible. You know, the reason I was working with the oncologists and the intensive care physicians in Spain is that um, about the time I first came across your research, actually, I uh, came up with this idea for a doctoral dissertation where I wanted to study the personality profile of physicians who were successfully able to manage the existential challenge of dealing with dying patients uh-huh. regularly. And then the plan was once I sort of worked out a profile, which would obviously include a, a measure of neuroticism, as you mentioned, um, then I would develop a predictive tool that I could um, use in medical schools uh, to screen medical students who were choosing those uh, specializations and say, look, you've got a very high chance of burnout, you know, if you become an oncologist. You might want to consider pediatrics or, you know, whatever. Um, that was my idea. And that, and so I, in Spain, doctors are much more relaxed than American doctors. Uh, and so I, I approached a couple of uh, hospitals there and told them what I was interested in. And they, without exception, they all just said, sure, come in, you know, we'll have a, a meeting and you can introduce your research. And, you know, and um, so I ended up becoming friends with a lot of oncologists and intensive care physicians in Spain. Uh-huh. Uh, I ended up not doing that research because I got so damn depressed. Yeah. You know, just reading about death all the time. And, and I think I don't have a good personality for that. You know, I liked being in that environment, but right. I got very um, blue sort of thinking about dealing with it constantly. Yeah, I think I would react the same way, frankly. Yeah. My wife's a physician and she, you know, she can't remember how many people have died in her in her hands. Um, wow. She worked in Africa for seven years in the bush um, during a war, actually, a simmering war in Mozambique. Oh, that's so remarkable. she's seen it all. Yeah. Um, which I really admire, but it's 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 not uh, it's not something I can do. Uh, you, talking about physicians, have you did you happen to catch the the article that Ezekiel Emanuel uh, published in the Atlantic, saying I hope I die at seventy five? Yes, wasn't that great? 
Very prof- provocative. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Why I, why I hope to die at 75, an argument that society and families will be better off if nature takes its, its course swiftly and promptly. Yeah. A little redundant there. Swiftly and promptly? Right. <laughs> but, I, you know, I like how he qualifies that, you know, when he goes on and says, I'm not going to shoot myself the day I reach 75. I'm exactly. just not going to do anything to perpetuate myself. And I thought that, um, you know, at first I was like, crap. Um, you know, I don't know if I have the fortitude to do that. Um, but then when he went on and, and, you know, was a little bit more explicit about what he had in mind, I thought it was commendable. Yeah. Yeah. He was essentially just saying, like, I'm not going to get chemo. I'm yep. not going to get, you know, prostate exams. I'm not going to do things that are uh, designed to sort of perpetuate life beyond the point where it's really worth living. Uh, he yes. says. He says, a simple truth that many of us seem to resist is that living too long is a loss. Yes. It renders us disabled, faltering, declining. And while that may not be worse than death, it's nonetheless deprived. It robs us of creativity, etc. Uh, and then he talks about how we're remembered. We're no longer remembered as vibrant and engaged, but as feeble and effectual, even pathetic, he said. Yeah, I thought that was, uh, it was compelling to me. Yeah, and there was also, you probably saw in, I think it was in the New York Times, uh, a few articles called How Doctors Die. Yeah. Yeah, and that really showed that these procedures, that like the ones you described in that research, that doctors... Uh, recommend to their patients CPR and you know intubations and all sorts of aggressive procedures. They themselves choose not to accept. Yeah, they don't want those. And again, that's revealing. Yeah, they know what they know the reality. That's it's right. not what you see on TV. So, uh, continuing this thread with cultures, what other cultures have you um, or or other people studied for these sorts of effects? Yeah, good question. Now. We have been, I would say, very limited uh, in terms of our own research team. Um, You know, we've done work um, in Canada with our students. We've done some work with German colleagues, done some work in the UK. Uh, My buddy Tom has worked in Poland. Uh, But all of these are kind of European cultures. Um, More recently, we've branched out. And uh, again, more importantly, though, um, there's a lot more work uh, in Asian countries. There's work in India. Uh, There's been work in Australia. We have a colleague, Michael Halloran, in Australia. And he had Australian Aborigines think about their mortality and found that they were more eager to go to war uh, against the white people. I'm sympathetic with them, by the way. But the, but the point was, um, the, most of these effects have been um, replicated in non-Western cultures to the extent that we've taken a look. That's interesting. And what did you find in India? Well, in India, there was a, a clever team of people, Emmanuel Castanzo, or Castano, at the New School. Uh, he and his students went to the town, and I always forget how to pronounce it. It's, it starts with a V, where a lot of the bodies are burned ceremonially. Uh, Varanasi, perhaps. Varanasi, yeah. And what they were interested in is the, they studied the people who handle the bodies every day. And they wondered whether or not someone in that condition would be chronically in a state of what we call mortality salience. 
And if so, they predicted that those people would be prone to disliking folks who are different at all times, not when they're reminded of death, because they're constantly reminded of death. And that's precisely what they found. Interesting. Now, then that would argue against what I was hypothesizing earlier in light of Solnit's book. Yeah, no, I don't think so, though. I think, you know, here's where it's tough, Chris, because, again, I think the body handlers, it just becomes routine to the point where it's kind of fleeting. Oh, okay. You know, as opposed to, you know, what all the theologians and philosophers have been urging us to uh, do, you know, since antiquity, which is that, you know, just really uber-conscious hyper-awareness of... Uh, you know, the fragility of life and the reality of death to the point where every moment just feels sweeter. Yeah. Do you think, is that possible to to hold that awareness? Probably not. Um, and great question, by the way. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, if I understand Ernest Becker, and here Becker is... Uh, uh, referring back to Abraham Maslow, um, you know, and Maslow made a good point, which is that we we would kind of psychologically implode on ourselves if we were either perpetually in fear or perpetually in a state of awe, that we just really couldn't stand either psychological condition. Right. Well, I mean, it it sort of feels like both conditions only makes sense in the context of their absence, right? Absolutely. If you're constantly in a state of awe, then, I mean, are you a dog, you know? Is that why we love dogs? Because they're just constantly like, wow, that guy's back again. Exactly. (laughs) Food. I get food again. Amazing. (laughs) And you know what? It would be all right to be a dog, but... Um, you know, but the dog doesn't kind of have that meta awareness of dogness like we do of our personhood. So it might be okay to be a dog, you know, in terms of being hyper enthusiastic at what seems to be all times, but that'd be exponentially compounded in a self conscious creature like ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Homo sapiens sapiens, right? There you the, go. The That's hominid right. that knows it knows. Yeah, nice. So what is it that we know we know? Is it that we're mortal? Is that, that, is that would the be, defining characteristic? Yeah, that's, you know, in our book that we just wrote that took us five years late. I don't know how you write books, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, we have a chapter that we call Homo Mortalis. And, you know, our point is, well, there's been a lot of designations of what it means to be human. So you got the Homo sapiens, you know, that were wise or rational creatures and then you've got like Homo ludens that were playful creatures. What do we got? Homo faber, we're tool makers. You know, Homo aestheticus, uh, we're aesthetic creatures. And all of those are good for heuristic purposes. But uh, we like this uh, Alexander Smith, a Scottish essayist. He said it is the knowledge that we must die that makes us human. And we would argue that that's ultimately our defining characteristic. Yeah, it's interesting to, to think about these questions of whether other animals are aware of death in any yeah. sense apparently uh, elephants and chimpanzees sure. seem to have some sort of grieving around death and and return to the scene of the death and absolutely and, and yeah 
you know, it, it would be surprising if there wasn't a rudimentary hints of this kind of awareness, um, at least in primates, let's say. But, you know, elephants are gregarious and intelligent creatures. And I think the difference, again, is this um, capacity to think abstractly combined with what the evolutionary druids call like mental time traveling. So an elephant might be aware of mortality at the time that it occurs and even go back to the proverbial scene uh, of a tragedy. Uh, but, you know, you're not going to see uh, a five-year-old chimp sitting on a rock thinking that I'm going to die someday. And yet there's ample evidence that children as young as two are aware of and concerned about the fact that they will someday die. Really? Yeah. We were surprised when um, we started thinking about these things because we're just egghead researchers. So we started doing all these studies and uh, those produced interesting effects. And then we did something unusual uh, in our field. Um, and this is nothing to be proud of. We started reading books and um, we came across one book by Irvin Yalom, Existential Psychotherapy. And there's a chapter about death and childhood. And in that chapter, he writes about a book, I think, written in the 1940s by a British woman, Sylvia Anthony, uh, called The Discovery of Death in Childhood. And she did these remarkable interviews with kids as young as two, as early as they could talk. And not every kid, but more kids than you would think of, uh, have these existential concerns at a very early age. In fact, there was one study that I find phenomenal where they interviewed kids and they interviewed the kids' mothers. And they asked the mothers, well, what are the, your kids afraid of? Uh, and the mother said, oh, my kids are afraid of snakes and getting bad grades in school. And what the kids said is that they were afraid of getting ill and dying. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, as you are talking, I was thinking about Kubler-Ross and, and uh, her pivotal book and the whole idea of the different stages of grief, denial, right. anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And being reminded of our own mortality induces that grief process in a I think so. sort of a micro grief process. That's right. And your research seems to be uncovering the anger stage. Yeah. Right. I think that's a nice way of putting it. There's that's a lot of right. aggression in what you're finding. Yes. Um, and a, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I'm, I'm also, I mean, this is sort of unrelated, um, but when we were talking about India, I was thinking, are there differences in cultures where people believe in reincarnation or, you know, you said symbolic um, afterlife, but I'm thinking of like animist hunter gatherers, like all of our ancestors were for most of our existence as a species. Yeah. Um, good point. We need to do that. Yeah. Um, it's, it, the, the, because I think that would be a critical test. Is this a, um, a universal proclivity, which we argue it is, or, or is it some um, you know, manifestation of modernity or civilization, as you put it? Right. Because if we're living in a society that inculcates the idea that death is sort of unnecessary— that's right. Then it's, you know, we're in this, we're, we're frozen into an immature psychological stage where we think we're going to get away from it. 
Yeah, nice. Uh, I like that imagery. Uh, you know, one of my phrases in my talks is it's time for the human race to grow up because if we don't, we're going to be in, in deep trouble. Yeah, yeah. I'm reminded of a scene in, um, uh, I think it was Catch-22 uh, where the the Americans finally land on Italy and they're coming through. And have you read that book? Yes. Yeah. I love. Yeah. And there's a scene where he finds this old Italian man, like sitting in the ruins and they have this conversation. That's right. Remember? And the Italians like, come on, this has been going on here forever. You know, these armies come in and then they leave and they destroy things and they kill people. And then that's right. You know, it's, and the, and the Americans like, no, this is now. This is unique. There's nothing like this. And it's it's such an interesting worldview. I, I live in Spain. I've lived in Spain most of my life. And um, so when I'm back in the U.S., I feel, you know, like a like a, a visitor, but I grew up here. So I get it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it's still foreign to me in some ways. And I think that the not coincidentally, the American attitude towards sex and death is very adolescent. Absolutely. And I do think it's cultural. I, it'd be very interesting to see where your research goes as you get into more um, sort of uh, pure uh, uh, subject pools. You know, like if you could work with hunter-gatherers, for example, that would be so interesting to see. Where yeah, you I get think there. you're right. Uh, it's hard uh, as hell to do, but... Well, yes, it is, but it needs to be done. Well, if there are any anthropology uh, graduate students or psychology graduate students listening to this, this is a ripe area for research. Exactly. Give a call. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So the name of the book is The Worm at the Core. and uh, That's right. And it's you co-authored it. I know there are three of you. It's it's you, uh, Tom Greenberg. Is that right? Yeah, it's actually Jeff Greenberg. Jeff Greenberg. University of Arizona and Tom Pazinski, the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. And we go back into the late 1970s. We met in graduate school, kind of enjoyed each other's company. And uh, we've parlayed our friendship into, a, you know, kind of an interesting professional life. So I consider myself very fortunate. Yeah, that's great. You're, you're, I mean, you get a little Beatles thing going on there. Yeah, there you go. That's right. <laughs> um, so did, was there something that fascinated the three of you about Becker in particular or this sort of research or, I mean, was this predestined? You're, are you all psychologists? Yeah, we all are. So, I, you know, who knows? That's, that's a good question, Chris. I mean, we were at the University of Kansas together as graduate students and, and we wanted to know why people need self-esteem and we wanted to know um, how come people can't get along with other people who don't share their beliefs. And we did some studies about this. And then I came to Skidmore College in 1980. And uh, maybe it is destiny because I was, uh, you know, by accident in the library uh, where one of Ernest Becker's books caught my eye. And it was a book called The Birth and Death of Meaning. And right next to it was this Denial of Death book. And, you know, I started reading it and I was like, well, here's this guy, you know, saying that it's because we're aware of death that uh, we need to perceive ourselves as valuable people in a meaningful universe. And it's because we cling to our beliefs tenaciously that we resist and resent people who are different. And then I realized, you know, 
Uh, this also rings true for me because I was not a big fan of the fact that I would someday die. And I remember that from my early childhood. So I called Jeff and Tom and I'm like, you have to read this fucking guy. He's actually saying what we've been thinking about. And, you know, they read these books and then we started trotting around the planet um, talking about these ideas. And basically, psychologists just laughed at us. They said, oh, this is nonsense. It's, it's either untrue because I don't think about death or maybe it's true, but it's not scientific. It's just philosophical speculation. And so that's what kind of goaded us into starting to do all these studies to show that there was an empirical basis to these claims. Yeah. Now, I don't want to get you in any trouble, but I'm, uh, I get a vibe from you like, uh, like you might have been to a Grateful Dead show or two in your life. Yeah, how about 200 maybe? Are you serious? <laughs> I'm afraid so. <laughs> Actually, I'm not afraid so. I'm, I'm happy to have been to that. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> um, I was just thinking uh, there's an organization I've, I've been involved with uh, since I was in grad school in like the mid-90s called MAPS. Are you familiar yeah. with them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, multi, multi, uh, what is it? Multicultural Association for Psychedelic Studies. Yep, absolutely. No, Multidisciplinary Association for okay. Psychedelic Studies. Yeah. Um, and Rick Doblin's a friend of mine. He's the, the head of MAPS. But they've done fascinating research uh, where doctors have used hallucinogens um, to help people who are in uh, terminal illnesses um, sort of process yep. their fear and anxiety around death. And they've remarkable effect. Yeah, they've had fantastic results from that. Yep. Um, There's so, I mean, this is, you're really lucky. You hit a, you know, early in your career, you, you hit a, a vein and you've just been digging it. And it's such a rich vein. Um, I really hope that, uh, you know, lots of people continue the work that you guys are doing because it's, I mean, I'd love to know, for example, how, how does someone's response uh, to these primes differ uh, after they've had an experience with ayahuasca or, or uh, psilocybin or something? Okay, so we are, we're literally hoping to get there. So I've, we've got some uh, uh, students in Italy who are looking at, uh, and this is slightly related, but uh, they're looking at folks that have had near-death experiences, mm-hmm. and they want to see if uh, subsequent to that, that they respond less defensively to these death reminders. And if it were possible to do this research, you know, it's only recently after, you know, decades that uh, I think a lot of this works at Johns Hopkins where the cancer patients are, you know, getting psilocybin. I think it would be tremendously important. Um, uh, There's a Czechoslovakian physician, Stanislav Graf, yeah, uh, who was doing a lot of this work in the 1940s and 50s. And so, um, you know, in many ways, there's an irony, and that's that the 1960s kind of set us back. You know, the substances uh, became prominent in terms of their widespread use, uh, but that undermined a lot of the research that might otherwise have occurred. 
Yeah, people don't don't realize that uh, very important neuro, neurological research was being done with hallucinogens. That's right. I mean, the whole serotonergic system of the brain was discovered because doctors were trying to figure out how such a tiny amount of LSD could have such profound effects. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I've met Stan Groff several times. Oh, really? That, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, he and Stanley Krippner. Stanley Krippner is a very close friend of mine, and... Uh, he um, and Stan Groff are old buddies from oh, okay. way well, back Well, Stanley Krippner, I owe, we owe, but me in particular, owe a lot to him because when we were young punks, and this is in the 1980s and getting laughed out of academic conferences everywhere, he wrote to me and then pulled me aside and said, you guys keep going, you're on to something. And coming from someone of his stature, it was a big emotional boost at the time. That's fantastic. I, I owe my entire career to him as well, actually. Really? That's great. Yeah. Uh, and, and he introduced me to my wife and then married us. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, Stanley's amazing. He's been on this podcast three or four times. Uh, we've, he's great. He's, I, I'd love to, to sit down with him and, and some videographers and do a whole sort of um, Joseph Campbell power of myth thing, you know? It would be great. He's just so full of experiences and knowledge, and he's hilarious. I love that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I would love to see your research applied to uh, hallucinogens because I really feel it, it, maybe it's as close as we can get to what we were talking about with hunter-gatherers, you know, because society's... Was I'm sure you know every society that's ever had access to hallucinogens oh, has seen taken them. advantage of them. That's right, right, and seen them as the greatest gift of the gods. Absolutely, because they open the mind, because they they sort of force you to confront things like your own mortality and the mortality Absolutely. of the people around you and the transitory nature of life and reality itself, right? That's and right. those are the very things that we see in the United States as being so threatening that people go to prison for longer for selling mushrooms at a dead show than they do for second degree murder. Well, yes, um, absolutely true. I, I worked in a maximum security prison when I first got here. And um, apropos of what you just said, uh, you know, you could kill somebody and get out of jail much easier and sooner uh, than first time possession of these substances that have, you know, I don't think it's an overstatement. They have potentially, uh, you know, profound and liberating effects. Yeah. Yeah. It really tells you something about a society that sees them as a threat. Yes. Which is a society in denial. And that's, that's correct. That's what your work's about. It's fantastic. Listen, I know you're busy. I know you've probably got students lined up outside your door, so I don't want to keep you any longer. But I really appreciate you making time for this. I think it'll be very useful for, for Well, listeners. thank you, Chris. It was my pleasure, and thanks for talking. Yeah, so the book is The Worm at the Core. And is there any other, are there any other websites or any place you want to send people? No, you know, we're a little low tech. Um, you know, we wrote a book and then we kind of got tired. So we don't have any kind of commercial rigmarole, but it's, it's available on Amazon <laughs> and even in a few bookstores. And, um, you know, we'd be happy to sell some copies. But uh, 
it was fun just to write it and to have opportunities to talk about these ideas with people like yourself is, is you know, compensation enough. Yeah, it's great. And, of course, people can Google terror management theory and they'll see lots of uh, research uh, available That's on right. this stuff. All right. Thanks a lot, man. <laughs> have a great day. Bye, Chris. You too. Bye-bye. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground